Hey everybody, Brandon here, and before we get into the show today, I wanted to just give a little bit of a heads up that we are going to be dealing with the topic of grief today, and thus uh, talking about things like death and loss and um, some other things that are hard for some people to handle um, listening to, and we wanted to respect that and just give a warning here at the beginning. We are not uh, therapists, we are not licensed counselors, we are not doctors, we are people who have gone through uh, things and use Star Wars to help us to comprehend that. And so we are sharing some of that with you and sharing our perspective on grief in Star Wars. But if you are struggling with anything, uh, any grief or sadness or depression um, or any other mental health things that you need to uh, get some assistance for, there is no shame in that. And we want to encourage that. Uh, we encourage you to reach out to a therapist or if you're unsure about how to go about doing that, feel free to reach out to me, Clashing Sabers Network at gmail.com or at Clashing Sabers, and I will do whatever I can to help you uh, get pointed in the right direction. Hi, this is Star Wars author Delilah S. Dawson, and you're listening to Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. Bypass the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Savers Podcast. My name is Brandon Boylan. I am one of your hosts, and I am here with my co-pilot. He is... Drew, how are you guys doing today? What is going on, man? We are... We have a loaded ship today. Of course, we have with us uh, somebody who... She's she's deeper than the, the oceans of Camino during a hurricane. That's how deep this this conversation is going to go today. And so we had to have on the Lady of Lore. It's Lindsay. I love that I get these beautiful introductions and Drew has to introduce himself. <laughs> he asked for that. I want you to remember, Drew, you asked for it. I, I have no memory of this place at all. <laughs> And we are not alone together. Uh, we are here and very <laughs> excited. It makes sense if you think about it. Just roll with it. Does it? Okay. It's good to be back, guys. <laughs> we are excited today because we are joined by a friend of the show who is making his debut appearance, boys and girls, from a larger view of the force. We have Devor. Hello, hello. Hey. I, I am happy to be here. A big fan of you guys. Well, thank you. We are big fans of you. Yeah, if you, uh, you. If you haven't listened to Larger View of the Force, if you like us for some weird reason, um, but if you like this whole idea of like insightfulness and analyzing the stories and stuff, uh, Devor's a lot smarter than all of us. So go over and listen to Larger View of the Force. Um, so, yeah, it's a... Uh, I, I, there are very few shows that like I feel like you can go back and like genuinely re-listen to to learn something. Like Mark has some on Forever Star Wars, um, and there's been some other shows that get into like the music and stuff. But Devor, you consistently have stuff where I'm like, I'm gonna go back and revisit that and try to steal Aww. some article ideas. Um, anyways, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so go over and uh, and check out. Uh, larger view of the forest and of course we'll have all the links and everything in there um, it will be in your uh, must listen list really really soon updates 
update time, news desk, click, 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 click. That's the little news update um, that we're going with. <laughs> Teachers have started receiving book boxes that we sent out after our uh, fundraiser. Yes. Yeah. Finally. So good deal. Um, you can check out our Twitter. I've got a few notes that uh, teachers have sent so far um, and the impact that they are making. But yeah, so we have uh, have at least two confirmed um, that have made it. I haven't checked the tracking information, uh, but I should be getting more alerts soon here in the next week. So this is actually, for those of you who are around the school environment, you know this, that the spring... Uh, while for everybody else, it's like things are coming alive and yay, spring. We're dying inside because we have now passed <laughs> spring break and the only hope is in June um, and testing is coming. And everybody's a little bit stressed but doesn't want to admit it. So kids, you know, they, they know they know what's up. They know how the world works and how testing puts extra pressure on everything, unfortunately. Uh, but it is what it is. And so being able at this time of year to get books into the classroom and get these kids excited about these books um, is something really, really special. And one of the notes that I had um, sent to me from one of the teachers was talking about um, how they were so excited because all the books were young adult level or uh, lower, which is appropriate for their class so that's one of the cool things we get to do Mm -hmm. is by having you guys who are listening um, and supporting us nominating the teachers uh, nominating people that you know uh, we are able to better target uh, the students that they have so um, when we go to when i when i go to the stores i'm buying specifically for age groups Um, and so for example uh, we have an autism class Uh, that we supported this year. And so I had a mix of different levels there because you can have a bunch of different needs there. So like there were some interactive books with sounds, there were some with, you know, word word picture connections, different things. So, um, you know, fortunately with me being in the education sphere and Adriana being in the education sphere, you know, we have our pulse on that, um, which is able to help us out. And then you guys, like I said, are, are the the big difference makers by donating and nominating those teachers. So if you would like to um, be a part of that, if you would like to help us to uh, support those teachers year round, you can go over to our Patreon. We have, uh, we've restructured it. We have more uh, condensed levels. You can, you can still support um, to however much you, you would like to. Um, but we've moved it to just four levels just to make it easier for everybody to pick and easier for us to manage the content that we're giving you guys and be able to put more in each um, tier there. So you can start at a dollar. Uh, our last year is $4, but you're welcome to uh, donate each month as much as you would like. So we Brandon, thank you for how that. Mu- how much do you think the average book costs you when you're looking at these different stores? Like, um, Well... It- Fortunately, I, I usually buy them used. I did this time just because of the weather in the area and access to bookstores. I did have, I did go to Barnes and Noble and and got some um, this time. But ninety nine. Yeah, but if you're sticking, yeah, if you're going to stick with a used book, they're probably what between two and four, maybe two, five dollars. Yeah, uh, yeah, two to f- two to four dollars. Most of them. Uh, there are some uh, of the newer canons. Uh, younger readers that haven't come out in paperback, so those can run six okay. to eight dollars. But you're looking at, you know, if you're donating a dollar a month, you're buying at least, you know, two books a year, three books a year for students. 
So that's something you can think about like if when you're going into the Patreon and looking at what kind of tier do you want to set. Think about just ask yourself how many books you'd like to get on a monthly basis and say, yeah, I can swing that, you know, how much is a, a coffee at Starbucks these days that, you know, one of those would put a book in a kid's hands. That's 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 a pretty decent trade-off if you're going to ask me anything. But then again, I don't drink coffee, so it'd be good anyway. <laughs> I knew I didn't trust you. You that's shouldn't. It. That's it you, right there. That's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> It's not my my undying passion for Mace Windu defense theories. It's it's that. No, that's endearing. <laughs> it's cute, is what you mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so tonight we are going to be uh, getting into a, uh, a heavier topic. We're going to be talking about grief um, in Star Wars and kind of how it works and uh, helps us uh, relate and things of that nature. But before we get into that, we have to ask our big question. And Devor, since you are our guest on the show, I'm going to ask you this. And just know, if you get this wrong, you may not be able to come back after the break. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What are you Star Warsing lately? I am, currently I am Star Warsing uh, Light of the Jedi. So I have officially Ooh. hopped onto the High Republic bandwagon. Oh, good. You got it right. You can stay. <laughs> well, hang on. Which Jedi Master is your favorite so far? Oh, oh I'm, I'm not that will. far. I've gotten, <laughs> I've gotten like I'm just a little past the like uh, the stuff on what is it called? Uh, Hetzel Prime? Is that the name of the planet? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I. So I'm not sure. like. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't gotten like super um, deep on the different Jedi, or at least not getting to know them that well yet. All right. Lindsay, I like how you come in there with like, yeah, that's what it's called. But then when we record Don't Burn the Sacred Text, you're like, how do you say that one with the thing and stuff? <laughs> but but if, if someone else says it, I'm like, that's right. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I love I love recording with Zach because he listens to the audiobooks and I'm like, I can spell this. He's like, I can't, but I can say it. <laughs> I'm like, all right, so you say things. I'll take notes. We're great. We're great together. <laughs> So, Devor, is this, you said this is your entry into the High Republic. You haven't read yep. any of the ones yet? So I have not, no. Generally, you feeling pretty good about it? Is it... I am, yeah. yeah. It is, um, someone described it to me this way, like, just when I started Light of the Jedi, but I've gotten the impression so far, like, it is, like, distinctly Star Wars. Like, it definitely has that feel, but it does feel, like, a little different from, like, Star Wars as we've known it so far. Um, so, Yeah. I'm definitely enjoying it. Zach yeah. says it's like the the Superman version, you know, where it's like the best yeah. version of things, which is yeah. kind of an interesting way. Yeah, I like that description. Don't sleep on uh, Test of Courage. I'm out here like repping for Test of Courage. That is such a good book. Oh, uh, no, definitely. It, it's on my list. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to get that because isn't the next like novel isn't going to be released until like June something, I think. Uh, Yeah, that's... I don't think there's... Brandon, are you keeping up with the comics at all? I will keep up with the comics when they come out with the trade paperbacks. I don't read That's week to week. I forgot. Yeah. Okay. But as far as like book releases, every few months, I don't know how they have it staggered out, but they will be doing an adult, young adult, and middle grade novel all at the same ah. time like this. So we'll get like a flood of it and then a break and then a flood of it, um, which will be cool because... You know, one, I'm imagining I don't have any like source on this or anything, but just based off of how they, you know, did these three books, they will keep them around the same time period. Like all of these happened roughly around 
the great disaster and the lighting of Starlight Beacon. Um, and I'm sure whatever the next thing, next three are, will have something that ties them to a similar thing so that you can easily follow the timeline along. Um, I'm sure there's going to be outliers like that. Like I, uh, the, the vow of the, what is it? not the vow of the crystal dawn, the one that's, uh, <laughs> The, the manga that's coming out that's not being released in the U.S. That's oh, being released I forgot about that. Uh, in the Asian markets. Yeah, uh, that's going to be fun for me to try and import that sucker. Yeah, we're going to have to try to figure that out. Give me two but, seconds. I have it. But I think that one is happening like closer to Phantom Menace, if I remember correctly. Um, Phantom Menace? What? Is yeah, it? like AB, ABY. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. No, BBY. Oh, oh, BBY you you. Mean, oh, you mean like it, it, within the timeline. I was like, yeah. Menace has been out since like 1999. Bro. No, no, no. <laughs> 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 yeah, this book has actually been out since 1998, but we haven't been able to get it imported. Oh, from. Yeah. We just haven't gotten the translation down. Yeah, that's it. Oh, that was fast. Did you catch them all? Good, I'll begin the offload. Udoba Nuchak. There is one job. Let's see the puck. No puck. Face to face. Direct commission. Deep pocket. I told you I'm not interested in your excuses. You had your shot, dust breather, but you failed. No pucks for you to get out of here. Okay, so this episode we are going to be talking about really one of the most challenging aspects to look at in any story, um, especially a story that we hold near and dear to our hearts, and that is the topic of grief. And Devor, being that you are almost, if not a bigger fan of Star Wars Rebels as I am, um, and that that is a place where we really got to actually see characters sit with grief and struggle, um, I felt like it was appropriate to to discuss this here with you. So before we do that, uh, I want to back up and define what we mean when we say grief. Uh, we do not mean grief karga, although, you know, he has made some decisions that I'm sure have given people some grief. Couldn't resist it, could you? Boo! <laughs> Oh, wow. The, toma- even, the tomato, Lindsay, that. really? <laughs> right in the back of the head? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Uh, but no, seriously, we, I want to have a definition of it that we work from because, you know, interpretation and, and connotation, everybody can kind of have something different. So I went off of uh, Webster's, and it says that grief is basically uh, an emotional response to loss, uh, particularly with regards to losing someone or something living that was important to a person and which with which they had an emotional bond. Um, so we're going to kind of focus on that aspect of uh, loss and its impact and primarily characters that lose somebody uh, literally, but we'll, we'll get into some of the metaphorical losses um, too. So there's obviously a lot of loss that happens in Star Wars. Uh, as much as it is a story of hope, it is it it is a tragedy. Uh, there's a lot of tragedy in Star Wars, even though it, it it's tragic in a way to uplift us through the hope that it provides out of that tragedy. Um, but I wanted to ask each of you, what death in Star Wars, which death in Star Wars stands out to you when you think of the word grief? And Devor, I'm going to send it to you first. All right. So um, in my case, because 
my favorite character in Star Wars is Darth Vader, I have to go with the death of Padme Amidala. Um, just because, you know, what we see in Star Wars, I mean, we see this a bit at the very end of Revenge of the Sith, but now that's been really started to get fleshed out in the extra canon material, in the comics, in other material, is what we see is that Vader slash Anakin becomes a person who is utterly defined by both grief and loss. Um, and we see that like time and again, particularly in the Vader comics. So, I mean, there's a ton, there's a ton of examples. There's like, I don't remember which of the series there is, but there's that one, there's that one panel where we get to see from his perspective, um, that moment on Bespin when he tries to reach out to Luke and then Luke basically like yeets himself into like the big pit or whatever it is and he's like looking down and he sees he sees luke falling but then it becomes like padme falling and then it becomes shmi falling and then we get all these other moments where you know we get to see him going back to naboo to visit the grave of padme um there's the like the the vr thing vader immortal where he's on mustafar and he's trying to use the dark side energy to revive her so like so he's someone who really becomes completely defined in his entire life by grief and the losses he suffered. And that's what we see. Like he, he is filled with regret because of the death of Padme. He hates himself. He hates Palpatine. He is constantly trying to bring her back and to restore that connection. And I think like in terms of like, I guess we could say retconning this into the original trilogy, like you can understand his desire to turn Luke as being motivated by that feeling of grief and loss. So when he's reaching out to him in Empire and he says, you know, together we can rule the galaxy as father and son, like he's wanting to be connected to what he thinks is the last living connection to Padme. Um, so when I think about like grief in Star Wars, and when I think about the way that at least certain characters become defined by their grief and loss, um, Vader's at the top of that list for me. Yeah, like, I mean, he, his entire life really is a testament to grief. And we're going to get into that in, in a little bit. But I, I, I'm glad that you pointed out the uh, extra canon material because that has really added a whole nother layer to that story. Like, I, I always think of that panel or that uh, arc in the Charles Sewell Vader comics where he goes into the meditation world and, the butterflies are around him and he actually sees Padme and starts to follow. It's just, it's really, really good stuff. And that is, is adding, like you pointed out to uh, his overall story and, and what we get with Luke. Drew, what about you? What is, what stands out to you when I say the word grief? Well, I, I, I go back to um, Ray in the force awakens, you know, we we see her. We're first kind of introduced to her as the scrappy can get by on her own kind of person, but we come to learn later on that there's more going on. That really she's built up all these walls around herself to kind of push back on the loss of her family. You know, she she we see the the wall of tick marks that we we don't honestly know what it means yet at the point when which we're first introduced to it. By the time we get to her adventures in Maz Kanata's castle. That Maz is able to really break through those defenses she has built up around herself. Um, you know, the moment where she says to Ray what you are looking for, or she says that they're never coming back. You know, she's able to put words to something Ray has underst- 
has understood but never really kind of accepted. You know, it's probably something she's dealt with and kind of, you know, she put her problems on the shelf basically for a while, but Ma said, no, you have to kind of look at this for a minute there. And it breaks it through to her in a way that nothing else had in her many years out in the desert. So I, can, I think that's probably one of the most poignant ones. When she was so eager to have them come back, she lived almost in that fantasy where she expected them to show up at any minute. But when Maz is able to confront her with the truth and say, look, you need to take a hard look at this no matter how much it hurts, and it does hurt, um, she's able to do that. And that's kind of her first step into moving forward and not leaving those, her parents behind her, obviously, as we see that comes to play a pretty big role later on um, in the next film. But it's more about her starting to accept the things that she knew but hadn't really accepted it and applied to her life yet, which is a very important step when somebody has to start dealing with these kinds of things. So, yeah, I'm going to stick with Ray, uh, Force Awakens Ray specifically. I, I, I think there's a little bit of a connection there in terms of, like, Vader, after he loses Padme, has this hope, really, for being able to bring her back to life, right? Because of, of what... Palpatine tells him in Revenge of the Sith about being able to yeah. you know, save people from dying. And Rey has created this fantasy world that her parents are going to come back. And I think deep down, both of them know it's not possible, but they also know that they would, they can't stop in a way, you know, and it's, I don't, I don't know that I, I think you're right with Rey that there's probably that she, she wants that her parents to return, but knowing that they're probably never going to come back. And being confronted with that truth is what is very difficult for her. I'm not sure Vader thinks it's impossible. You know, he learns about, he le- hears the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise prior to his, his fall and prior to losing Padme. So he's thinking about the possibility of bringing, you know, the rest of his family back to him and preventing the death of Padme. The, the two very different things, though. So I, I don't think that, especially with the, the influence of the dark side, which clouds and distorts everything, which which has its own agenda and its, and its own cancerous uh, absorption and wants to take over Vader as a person, where Vader's trying to use that power himself and he's in this constant battle, I think he believes that there's a way to make it happen. And if he just acquires enough power, it's not impossible. Now, not being more familiar with the comics and some of the other ancillary materials, maybe that's not necessarily accurate, but... I think the films do a pretty good job of telling the viewer that he believes everything he's saying. Like, especially when you think back in episode three, when they're on Mustafar, he believes everything he says. He has brought peace to his new empire. You know, with Padme by his side, they can, oh, it's just, he's, he's delusional at that point. But yeah, you ask him what's real and what's not, he's definitely going to tell you he can figure it out. That's fair. I mean, I think, an argument can be made that it's one of those situations where both are true, where he fully believes it and also knows, you know, it's like one of those situations where like, you know, this person is, is terrible or whatever, but you tell yourself they're good because you, you care for them and you, you want to support them or whatever. Like you look past the things that are wrong. And I think an argument could be made that Anakin is so caught up in his own grief that he creates this reality that he lives in 
that at the same time he knows isn't true. And that's that's what keeps that little bit of Anakin alive. That's what we get when the, the helmet breaks in Rebels and he talks to Ahsoka. And that's what we get, you know, in obviously Return of the Jedi. Um, I don't know if they're... I don't know if those ideas are necessarily mutually exclusive. Well, that's that's also possible too. Yeah. Yeah, Lindsay, what about you? When I say grief, what comes to mind? So mine, the one that comes to mind for me is, I think the the reason it sticks out so clearly and so immediately is because it was really my first personal interaction with grief in Star Wars. You know, my my journey was I saw Phantom Menace when I was nine years old. I watched the original three after that. And then I watched Attack of the Clones. And there's something about going into Attack of the Clones where for me, that was the first time I was going in with expectations and some understanding. But it was still totally new. And it was going to be really fresh, and I was going to find out what happened for the first time. Um, so with this kind of journey in mind, the the grief that sticks out to me is actually Anakin and Shmi's relationship. Because when you're nine years old, mm. and you watch a kid your age go through what he did and have to leave his mother, and you know, I'm in the theater with my mom <laughs> watching this, and it's it's this extreme personal connection, but because I wasn't you know, necessarily a Star Wars fan at that point. I don't know if it hit the way it would have. Um, But going in, you know, when I'm 12 years old and I have this deep, deep connection to these characters and I understand that, okay, this Anakin kid is going to be Darth Vader, but what could possibly happen in the next two movies to set this off? You know, he, he finishes... Phantom Menace, as such a sweet, innocent, kind-hearted young boy, what could possibly happen? And then for Shmi's death scene to happen, I I vividly remember sitting in the theater just openly weeping, um, which is pretty rare for me even back then. But having that connection and understanding, okay, this is... This is what sets it off. It's not even necessarily having to leave his mother the first time. It's that he left her in vain. He was leaving her because he thought he was going to save her. And now it all seems pointless. And starting to understand, okay, this is where the spiral goes. And at the same time, he lost his mother. You know, I'm 31 years old now and I still can't imagine that. And I don't know how people go through that. But for, for this person who I grew up with, I had this connection with to watch them go through this. That was a real grief striking moment for me. And even now when I go back and I watch that scene, I still kind of get those pangs of hurt for him. Yeah. I I like that you, you made that personal connection there because that's kind of for me, uh, what grief reminds me of because uh, when we lost Carrie Fisher was, uh, it hit me pretty hard because Leia is obviously a really important character to me. Um, but I also lost my grandma soon after that. And my grandma was my best friend and, and really through, through what, how I understood the world at the time, she was the only person that had ever always believed in me, that had never given up on me. And so, I literally did not know how the world could function without her. I remember like when we lost her, like that, that's what I was saying. I don't know how I can do this without her. So having those two, my brain made the association of, you know, 
General Leia Organa and my grandma and that connection just always stood there. So when I think of grief, that's what I think of uh, because it's it's layered, which I think grief is. You know, I have my personal connection to it. Then there's also the fandom level of losing Carrie. And uh, then there's the whole layer of like episode nine. And... <laughs> And I don't want to. I don't. I'm not complaining about episode nine here. It's not the the movie. It's the fact that when she dies, it's not Carrie Fisher. And it's a weird thing where I know they did what was best for the story, but we. I also know that like the last scene with Carrie Fisher was not Carrie Fisher. And it's a weird, mm. you know, like it's a weird, I'm not upset about it. So I don't want people to think I'm complaining, but it's just, uh, it hits an almost unfulfilling tone. Um, and it's, it's something that I wrestle with because like I said, I'm not upset about it or anything like that, but it does, it makes me question a lot why I feel that way. And I mean, the answer that I keep coming to is, you know, we put these people um, in our pantheon of heroes. My grandma was my hero. Carrie Fisher is one of my heroes. And when they don't meet our expectations, that can be difficult. For me, it wasn't in the way we see a lot of other people, you know, not meet expectations. Some other people that, you know, get put up as heroes. But for me, you know, my grandma was going to live forever you know, and because when she got sick, it happened very quickly. And it was like one day she's perfectly fine. And the next day she's in and out of the hospital for months. And then for Carrie, same thing. It happened really fast. And you're like, this person who's overcome all of this stuff should get to go out the way that she wants to go out. And so it's a weird, you know, like really makes me think of how we wrestle with grief and how I think grief doesn't really have an answer. So... With that said, let's try to figure out some answers. Because <laughs> um, I want to go back to Anakin Skywalker. And, and I want to, as we move forward, we're going to kind of frame it going through um, the trilogies, talking about the major characters who suffer, suffer loss there. Obviously, we are not going to be able to cover even close to everything. And I'm sticking primarily with the movies, um, just so that we have a little bit of structure to this. But if you have... Uh, a story of grief and associated with Star Wars or a character that stands out to you um, that you want to write up something about, please send it in to us uh, on Twitter or our email at clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com. Go over to our Facebook group and post about it. Like, let's share those stories because I think as we'll see, dealing with grief is something that is either handled uh, very roughly individually or much better together. And so talking about Anakin he obviously responds to grief on quite poorly on multiple occasions. Um, and so <laughs> he's a pretty measured guy. You know? Yeah. He, he, he's very <laughs> rational and doesn't make any snap judgments. I, I want to ask this question because I think when, when something bad happens and, and when we see somebody turn like that and we're dealing with grief, we try to blame something or someone. So Devor, for you, is Anakin, is his fall his fault? 
because he's the one who reacted or does it fall on the Jedi order who failed to equip him with the necessary skills to deal with said grief? I think it's the Jedi. I really do think it's the Jedi. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And here's the reason. So I'll just sort of like walk, walk through my kind of thinking about this. So if we start, if we start the clock in the Phantom Menace, we get that first scene where Anakin is in front of the council and he's getting tested and he's getting sensed by everybody. And that moment the Jedi know there's an issue with Anakin. We get the Kiati Mundi line, your thoughts dwell on your mother. They know this kid. Like, this kid has just been separated, and he's not over it, and he's got this emotional attachment. So they know from the jump that this kid has an issue with attachments and letting go and lingering on these things. In fairness to the Jedi, they try to stop Anakin's training. They don't yeah, no they, they, they don't let it go through at first. Of course, the official reason they give is that he's too old, not because like they think there's an issue. But like even when Obi-Wan gets the green light, we get that Yoda line where he says, grave danger, I fear in his training. So from the jump there, there is, you can see that concern that the Jedi and the, particularly the Council have about Anakin around things about his attachments, sensing that you know, clouded this boy's future is, like, things may not go well if he's trained to be a Jedi. But they still ultimately go ahead with it. And then what we see at multiple points, and we can talk about a whole bunch of them, is that there are multiple warning signs all throughout Anakin's training that he has issues around attachment and loss and letting go and how he reacts. But no one does anything. And I want to focus on, again, we can talk about a bunch of different examples um, from both the movies and, you know, Clone Wars and such. But I think there's one particularly poignant one that I think really illustrates where the Jedi go wrong in terms of how they deal with Anakin and then ultimately how he ends up on the path that he does. And that is the massacre of the Tusken Raiders. So, right, we all know the story from Attack of the Clones, which is Anakin finds Shmi, she passes away in his arms... Why'd she have to die? Why couldn't I save her? I know I could have. Sometimes there are things no one can fix. You're not all powerful. Well, I should be. Someday I will be. I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. I promise you, I will even learn to stop people from dying. Anakin. It's all Obi-Wan's fault. He's jealous. He's holding me back. What's wrong, Annie? I killed them. I killed them all. They're dead. Every single one of them. And not just the men, but the women and the children, too. They're like animals, and I slaughtered them like animals. We get that cutaway to Yoda in his meditation room with Mace Windu, where he is sensing Anakin's grief. 
he, he has that line where he says, pain, suffering, death, I feel. So both of them in that moment are aware, like, this kid is in a lot of pain. And presumably they're also sensing the fact that he is reacting unhealthily to that grief. But no one does anything. Yoda doesn't do it. I mean, to the extent that we know. Yoda doesn't do anything. Mace doesn't do anything. Obi-Wan doesn't do anything. At all. Nobody addresses it or brings it up at all. Now, when is the next time that the Tusken Raider thing comes up again? Who brings it up the next time that we see it in canon? Palpatine in Revenge of the Sith. After Anakin kills Count Dooku, he has that moment of remorse where he's like, I shouldn't have done that. It's not the Jedi way. And then how does Palpatine respond? He says, it's only natural. He cut off your arm. You wanted revenge. It wasn't the first time, Anakin. So th if you look at that incident, you've got on the one hand the Jedi who are like, uh-oh, like, kid is, he, he's got problems. Like, he's, he's suffering. He's dealing with a lot of pain. But no one really does anything. And then you've got on the other hand, you've got Palpatine saying, eh, you killed a bunch of Tusken Raiders? It's only natural. You wanted revenge. It's fine. You reacted the way that you were supposed to react. It's fine. So you've got this dual situation. What we see with Anakin is that you've got, on the one hand, warning signs that are kind of getting ignored or silenced by the Jedi. And then on the flip side, you've got this other guy, Palpatine, who is basically egging him on in a way, basically telling every, like all of these impulses that you feel, the, the feelings of loss, the desire for control, for power, for revenge, all that is good. You need to cultivate it. You need to lean into it. And I think the combination of those two things ultimately help put Anakin on the path that he ends up on. Mm -hmm. And if you notice there, like Palpatine is encouraging him to escalate based on his grief. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, he cut off your hand, you wanted revenge by cutting off his head. Like, it's, <laughs> mm -hmm. it, you know, he's supporting that escalation, which, when you contrast that, like you were pointing out, to the Jedi, and you go and you look at what Obi Wan tells him in Attack of the Clones, when he's trying to open up to his father figure about f having bad dreams and feeling very uncomfortable and unsure of himself. And Obi-Wan, who could have provided a lot of insight, goes, dreams pass in time. <laughs> he tells him to get over it. Yeah. You know, like that's literally, to me, that is like the, you know, rub some dirt on it kind of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, yeah. I think there definitely is some value in the fact that like, you do have to just get over it. In the sense that there's, it's not going to be something that you can just wait for to happen. You have to actively pursue overcoming negative emotions like that. Okay. That doesn't make them bad in and of themselves. They serve an important part in our life and we should acknowledge them and stuff like that. But at some point you do have to, or at least I've always had to in my life, make the decision. Like I'm not going to let this run my life anymore. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore, but it's not taking control. It's not in the front seat. And here you have a chance with Obi-Wan to show Anakin that, to show him. I mean, go back to Phantom Menace. He starts the movie by having a bad feeling about something elsewhere, elusive, not about that mission. I mean, you could have taken it right there and had him say, when, the, when we first went to Naboo, I had a bad feeling. I knew something was going to happen. 
and I wasn't able to stop Qui-Gon from dying. I had to, I sat there and watched him die. And you make that automatic, boom. Like, you could retcon it that way, and you have a much better solution there. So, I don't know. Jedi but then at what, at what point, though, do we say, you know what, Anakin handled this badly? Like, I, I get and I agree that the Jedi are at fault to a point. But where do we stop and say Anakin does have some blame in this? This was his mistake. He knew better. And he, you know, like he says, he's a Jedi. He knows he's better than this. At what point do we say Anakin takes some fault here? I think he definitely takes the fault for the action. Like, at the end of the day, he pulled the trigger, right? But there's, you know, institutionally, he was set up for failure. So it's like, I don't know that there's like a line. I think they are, you know, are two things that exist individually, but also together. Drew, what do you think about that? Uh, well, all of us with our, our master's degree in therapy and counseling, <laughs> just make sure we're very clear that this we're just we're talking about these these movies and whatnot, doing our best to analyze them. But to me, it reminds me. I I, I think I'm going to take Lindsay's question and extrapolate from that because I, I think this. If you guys remember, well, golly, what year is this? It's 2021, so. Back in 2002 or so, there was the DC Beltway Sniper. I don't know if anybody was terribly familiar with this. Let's see if anybody responds in any kind of way. Uh, I, no. vaguely, okay. I vaguely so, remember, yeah. There's a great podcast on it. <laughs> there you go. Let me uh, give you a, a crash course on it. Um, for a couple months in the fall and winter time of 2000, I think it's 2002, there was a guy who would travel around with a sniper rifle and would just execute people at long range distances indiscriminately. So there was no pattern, no nothing. So for months people were living in terror in that or in and around that city, you know, in the Northern part of Virginia. And it turns out it was, it was two guys who were working as a team. There was an older man and a younger guy named Lee Boyd Malvo. And he's kind of, he was kind of taken in by the older man and he was, um, he came from a bad situation himself, but he was kind of all, not necessarily adopted, but definitely taken under his wing and trained up in, the, in, a, in a way and, and basically brainwashed into serving as his, as his ward, as his replacement, as, as a fellow, you know, they, they consider themselves the hand of God as they executed justice upon these people indiscriminately. And it reminds me of the Palpatine-Anakin situation. Because while the Jedi may not have done a good job of taking care of him, they're building off of a tradition that lasted thousands of generations. They're, they're not doing a great job of taking Anakin as a person as he comes and evaluating his individual situation. Rather, they're taking a broad-spectrum approach and saying, this worked before, it'll work for you. Here's how you just got to deal with it. You just got to handle it yourself. Palpatine comes along and rearranges the conversation and says, no, 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 no. What you did isn't bad. It's natural. You're striving for Palpatine tells him you're basically striving for this this level of Jedidom that isn't attainable. You know, it's not real. I can show you what's real. Your impulses and your behavior is real. And that is what he gets him to lean into, Devor, like you said. He really indulges he gets him to indulge in that kind of stuff. 
And that feels good to Anakin because, A, it's direction that no one has ever given him before, but B, it's somebody who's listening to him. It's somebody who's applying an individualistic approach to his particular situation. But Palpatine offers no solution. He offers no real comfort. He's not doing any better to solve the problem. He's manipulating and abusing this person for his own goal. I mean... Anakin's the one who kind of kills a lot of people on his command. So, <laughs> did the Jedi fail? I mean, not by their own standards. Do their standards suck? Perhaps. That's probably more appropriate, is that they're just not good at it. But I don't think it's entirely fair and accurate to place the blame for Anakin's fall and turn solely at their feet. In fact, I don't put it at their feet. They, could they have stopped it? I don't really know that they could have. They're not equipped to do that. If, if we're going to blame a singular entity, which I also don't think is a very smart thing to do, it's got to be Sheev Palpatine. And I, I think part of the issue that we have to consider is you're saying the Jedi were you know, following a script and it's working. But we go back to the High Republic and the Jedi already know it's not yeah, working. Yeah, I thought of that too. <laughs> right? Like... We I, don't know. We're two, three books in and a couple comics. We don't quite know where this goes yet. But I was thinking in the back of my mind, they were ask, people were asking this question before. Yeah. But, and, but again, it's an institution that exists for thousands of years can't be built an entire house of cards. It cannot be. Nothing can withstand the test of that much time and have no truth to it at all. So it's kind of one of those like, yeah, this is really good. Except for this one thing over here we're terrible at. The church, for example, there's a lot of good there, you know, and yes, it has its its value and its merit and everything like that. But then you, you go over to the other side and you've got, you know, priests doing not so good things. And does one, <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to keep it, you know, somewhat family friendly, uh, does one cross out the other does one excuse the other like that's the argument that's can be could be made there you know as far as the jedi order that i don't know what that has to do with grief so much as like anakin or anakin not really having a support system behind him you know like some people who grow up in in the church environment and you know start to see the issues with it and it really shatters their faith. And then how do they deal with the rest of their life going forward? You know, that's not, and then let me be clear. I'm a man of faith. This is not to knock anybody's faith or anything like that, but just considering, you know, these are things that we factually know are happening, have happened. How do they affect somebody who's in a position like Anakin when he has to deal with the emotions that an institution like that is, designed to help with i have no problem calling out the the shortcomings of uh, my particular faith in fact i i I thrive on that it's kind of one of the most fun things i can do to tell point out the most horrible evil things we're doing and say you should know better but really it has to do with the way palpatine um abuses anakin's grief he takes advantage of it and and really digs into it that's always his what he does with him he's, he's he uses that loss in his life to get him to do what he wants him to do. Whereas the Jedi wanted him to just bury it deep down so that no one, so that not only there was no person who could touch it, 
but also the dark side could not come and take it. And really, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Devor, did you have something else to add on that? Yeah, I had... Um, I know we technically have a question about this a little bit later on, but I do think... Uh, Drew had that line where he was talking about, like, the Jedi, like, going off of a script, like, and, and just sort of, like, repeating their kind of conventional wisdom. And I have in my notes here, um, under the Anakin section, I have shitty Yoda therapy session, um, which <laughs> I think amazing. we need to address. Yes, yes. yes please. Because That's I think... that the, on the DVD, isn't it, right? Yeah, because, I mean, if we want to talk about, like, the Jedi going off a script, that is, like, the apotheosis of the Jedi going off of a script is that therapy session at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith where, like, Anakin comes and he's like, I'm having these dreams. I'm seeing someone close to me. He's getting lost. And Yoda is, like, just busting out the manual and being like, "Uh, you know, rejoice for for those. Uh, You know, mourn them. Do not miss them. Do not. Uh, Attachment leads to jealousy. And... I think it's a good, I think that is a great example of exactly what you were describing, Drew, in the sense that, like, you can kind of see the Jedi there kind of starting to run out of steam, that they're just, oh, they're yeah. caught in this loop, and, like, all they have to go back to is their, the conventional wisdom they built up over thousands of years, and obviously it's very clear in that moment, you can even just see it on, like, Anakin's face that, like, this is just not a satisfying <laughs> answer because Yoda basically just tells him to like get over it, much yeah, like it, Obi Wan with the dreams passing time. It's the fortune cookie wisdom that mm-hmm. is like bringing this this soul shattering pain, and he's summoning every bit of courage he has to admit that I can't deal with this on my own. And, and Yoda is like pulls out an index card and goes, "More than do not, miss than do not." Are we, are we good here? <laughs> like that's the extent. Like, and I think that's purposeful. Like, you know, we as the audience are supposed to be like. Are you for real? Like, oh my gosh. Can but you think you know of a what, worse though, possible I, I thing to say? I want to say, though, too, like, this kind of really does tie into the grief aspect for Anakin because I think a big part of why Obi-Wan says something like that, why Yoda would break out the manual, that's like, that's, that's a perfect way to put it, put it honestly. Um, but I think part of it is Anakin's way of dealing with this grief is that he doesn't really know how to convey it. And I think that's something that's really common that we see in our own day t- today when we're dealing with this grief. It's how do I turn to a confidant, someone I trust, how do I turn to a friend and say, you know, hey, look, I'm, I'm having this issue. I'm really struggling with this because I think a lot of people, myself included, tend to lean towards the, I don't want to seem dramatic. I don't want to cry wolf. You know, I don't want to bring anyone else down. And I think that's part of Anakin's issue is he doesn't, he might understand this isn't normal. I have all these issues. I have all this grief. I don't necessarily know how to tell someone in the appropriate way that I'm dealing with this. And that's why people don't respond appropriately. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, really good point. And, I mean, ultimately, like, what we see, um, I think what we see ultimately with Anakin and Revenge of the Sith, this goes back to, like, the point that I sort of started with initially, um, is that, like, that failure of the of the Jedi, like, of the Jedi way to work, creates this inroad for Palpatine to basically come in and say, guess what, kid? Like, you don't want to lose someone? Like, you don't want to just get over it? You don't have to. Like, there was this guy who figured it out. Like, you don't want to lose anyone? Here's how you how you keep them from dying. 
So yeah, it's those Option two forces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I think that transitions us to the original trilogy. Um, and and for the original trilogy, I want to look just at Leia briefly because we're going to get more into those characters in the sequels. But Leia, you know, being the son of Anakin, if we're thinking about Daughter. it in the context of grief, like she is a character where, where Anakin, we get to see him failing to deal with his grief. Leia, we don't get to see, at least in the original trilogy, her dealing with that grief. Uh, she loses her entire planet and then, you know, hours later is saying, we have no time for our sorrows. And situationally, yes, like the plot, yes, it makes, it makes sense. It's not bad writing. Um, it's showing the strength of, in my opinion, of Leia. So my question to you guys, and Drew, I'm going to send this to you first, is whether this idea of this not seeing her deal with her grief is something that helps her character by showing her strength or shortcuts her character by not making her more human and relatable. Oh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. Do I have like a couple days I can think about my response? <laughs> no, you have to give your answer right now. This is how podcasting works. Oh, oh, you can't just edit this together on like Thursday night or something? No, nah, okay, that's cool. not. Sorry, Got we, we cool, release cool, cool, on cool, Tuesdays. Cool, cool. Oh, dang it. Um, I should probably subscribe to the channel. Um, I really love your, <laughs> your, your delaying tactic of just bantering and badgering Brandon. <laughs> I mean, Thank you for giving me another 20 seconds, by the way. <laughs> it's oh, been yeah. working for... Yeah, rem- remember this. Remember I did this for you, because I'll need it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked um, for 80-some-odd episodes or something like that? Wait, I'm going to give you another 30 seconds. Brandon, at this point, I think I forget the question. Can you repeat it? <laughs> <laughs> oh. makes the dream work. Does the lack of showing Leia grieving... Is that something that strengthens her character by showing how she's able to just overcome? Or is it something that shortcuts her character by not making her more human and relatable? Okay, here's, I got the, I got the answer. See, I just, you're welcome. I appreciate (laughs) you, Lindsay. You are, you are, uh, you are a, uh, the answer is not C, just to be clear. It, It is, it really is because. I think that kind of like Brandon, like what you said, it's like what we're talking about hours later between she witnesses the destruction of Alderaan and then shows up on Yavin four, um, like maybe two hours. There is a time period during which the action that occurred does not seem real. And because it doesn't seem real, you can box it up and literally handle it later. Um, it's, it could be hours or it could be days, it could be months, whatever. But there is a time period in which the, the, the catastrophic event is not yet real to you, and that's okay. Mm. So I think that's... And I want to compare this to something that happens in Empire, because I think during uh, A New Hope, the story does have to keep moving. You're so close to the end, and it's li- <laughs> her line about we have no time for our Cyrus commander is, is, is so spot on because it's like, guys, there's only 15 minutes left in the movie. We don't have time for this kind of character development. Something has to blow up. <laughs> but in Empire, she does get time to herself, and really she needs to be by herself in order to start processing those things. And I think it occurs kind of in the asteroid belt. When they've landed the Falcon inside the, the space worm, who has a real name, I think. Um, 
and there's a quick shot of her just kind of head on, resting on her hand. And she's staring at the control panel. She's kind of bathed in the blue light of the monitors. And right before she sees the Minox, I think, she's just alone with her thoughts. And she's got a lot to reflect on. And she takes a, a moment just to herself to kind of absorb what's happening. And that, I think, is where some of that starts to set in. There's interpersonal things happening. There's the fleeing from Hoth. There's the dealing with all the loss. And I'm sure it will, all of those things in her mind follow one thing after the other. She remembers the past couple of years of how she got to the point where she's stuck in this broken down piece of junk uh, with 3PO, basically. Um, and I think it is a strength of a, for her character. We get to see her take a breath. And that is important for a person who does have to deal with these kinds of things that happens to her. The loss of a planet is not something any of us Earthlings can even begin to comprehend happening and affecting us in a personal way in such a way that we actually get to experience it. Like, no one has watched Earth blow up yet. Somebody might, but we don't have a way as an audience to connect to that. So if the film was to slow down and allow that to settle on her and try to settle that on us, it becomes more ridiculous. Um, the destruction of the planet isn't even used as like an emotional moment for Leia as so much as it is a look how bad the bad guys are. That's really what it's for. And so I think if we understand the purpose of what the script itself is doing, we can understand that it doesn't slight her character. It doesn't show her to be some kind of cold-hearted uh, monster who feels no feelings. Uh, I think quite the opposite the story literally just has to brush past it and it's going to deal with the more important things in a minute. Does that help answer your question from like, yeah, I think, ago? I think it does. Uh, because <laughs> I mean, in a roundabout way, you know, cause it, it is layered. Like it is, I, I like what you said there about like onions. how, yeah, exactly. Um, and it makes you cry too. Cakes. <laughs> how, you, you know, didn't know this was a Shrek podcast. Did you? I hate you so much. <laughs> Every good podcast turns into a Shrek podcast. You wanted to have so congratulations. Brandon wants to talk about grief and the death of people, and I'm over here like ogres. ogres. <laughs> In the morning, I'm making waffles. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite line. God, y'all are too much. All right. Um, so, one thing that I do want to make note of, though, just because we our advocates for, you know, the whole canon and how they reinforce things in other stories. In the Leia comic, there is a moment where she's seen writing um, uh, a letter of some sort. And I'm forgetting the character's name. It's Yvonne or something of that nature um, who she picks to go with her on that mission, um, who's also from Alderaan, is asking her, you know, why are you writing these, basically? And Leia's response is, you know, I, I've lost everything. I know what loss is like. And so she basically explains to her that she's writing these notes to the families of all the rebels who have died in combat um, and how she, you know, knows what it's like to not have seen the person, you know, like actually die, but to know that you're never going to see them again kind of thing um and it's and it is in a a good moment it's it's short it's only a couple panels long if i remember correctly but um that definitely is there now another place that we get to actually see grief and and it's 
probably to me the most important example because I think the characters handle it in a very good way is uh, the end of season four of Rebels with the loss of Kanan Jarrus and how Hera and the ghost crew uh, respond to that. Um, I I know once once the episode came out, uh, uh, Jedi Knight, where they lose Kanan, there's a little bit at the end... Um, but that's mostly the end is the loss of him and that entire next episode. And mind you, this is like rapid fire episodes we're getting. If you weren't watching rebels as it was coming out, like we were getting like two at a time. And then like, I think we got three at a time one time. They were dropping them in bulk. And, uh, of course they didn't after the Canaan one, we had to wait another week, but we got an entire episode of these characters grieving, um, which I thought was really, really important. So, in terms of your initial reactions to that, because I know all of us on here um, have different connections to Kanan and to certain characters in uh, in Rebels. When you were actually watching the reactions to the death, not his actual death, but watching the rest of the crew react to it there at the moment it's happening and then in that episode afterwards, what what was your response to that? What thoughts were you having? How did that make you feel? You know, I actually want to take this one because for me, um, I obviously love Kanan. You know, I don't think anyone dislikes Kanan or or anything like that. He just wasn't my favorite character. Um, So that's part one. Part two of this is I've said on this show, I say it all the time, aside from Star Wars, look, big Game of Thrones fan. Big, big Game of Thrones fan. So... I am very, very used to having that connection with a character, loving a character, and then being just viciously murdered in front of me. Like, that's that's something I'm a little bit used to. <laughs> wow, she is desensitized, so, ladies and gentlemen. So I am, I am. So all that, all that considered, gain and dying, like, I was, I was shocked by how, how much emotion I had in that scene. Um, I, re- I really was shocked, and I think part of it was, was like, we all kind of knew what that he was going to die at some point, but I think all of us had in the back of our heads like it's we did. Fine, we're safe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not all, but the one thing that I was not prepared for were those reactions because that's something we don't get on Game of Thrones. People just get murdered and. You go on to the next scene and another person gets murdered. Like, it's <laughs> it's no... I've, I've never really watched a show where you have time to, with the exception of maybe Sons of Anarchy, you have time to sit and decompress what just happened. And in those moments of silence, too. You know, there's obviously a beautiful soundtrack, beautiful score going on. But to really just sit with characters and see how it impacts them in those immediate few moments was something so new and so completely raw to me that I do think that had a bigger impact on me and it still does when I rewatch it than Kanan's death initially. And even in those next couple of episodes when people are still in those quiet moments dealing with it. You know, one of my favorite parts is when Hera seems pretty okay-ish when she's around other people and she can step up and do what's needed. But those moments when she's alone, she kind of has those quick little breakdowns and she doesn't know what to do and it's hard for her. 
I think that is something that is so inherently Star Wars that they let us decompress and they let us sit with our emotions and realize this is common. This is something everyone has to go through. Maybe we don't all talk about those quiet moments. Maybe we don't broadcast those quiet moments, but they're there. And I think thinking back to that time, I remember after... uh, after the episode, like I went to work that day, you know, not everybody who asked me how I was, but like people, you know, that I was actually close to would be like, you know, hey, how are you or whatever. I'm like, honestly, I am distraught over the loss of a fictional animated character. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I understand how weird that sounds. But, but to see Hera, who is my favorite Rebels character, um, is somebody that I, you know, more or less look up to, you know, kind of thing, uh, to see her struggling with what I had been struggling with, uh, with this grief. And of course our griefs were different, but they, they were both the same emotion. Um, it was really validating, honestly, you know, because it's like you, you lose someone and you feel like you have to almost just like get over it instantly because we th- that's what we see in stories and stories inform our life and like you pointed out Lindsay like it's very rare you get to see people mourn and have grief immediately after you'll have you know characters who had stuff pre-show happen you know they lost their sister or they lost a child or whatever um and and that informs their story now and we see that they're still distraught about it but we very rarely get to see the immediate aftermath. And so that was really, really validating for me. So for Drew, for you, because you, uh, you know, watched Rebels later on and are a huge Kanan Jarrus fan, how did, not his death, because we've talked about his death a lot, but how did Hera and Ezra and all of their response to his death, how did that impact you? Um, I don't know that I've watched the episodes after that since I watched them the first time. Wow. Um, you know, Hera comes back up in the Alphabet Squadron books, and there are moments we get to spend in her head, and she remembers that still. She, she wistfully remembers the good times they had and, and, and then losing him, and she thinks about those, and this is a story that is going to take place years Years later, it would be at at least least two, Uh, at least five. Because you have the whole, yeah. So about five. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So years later. So it's it's comforting to know, kind of Lindsay, like you were saying, like it's comforting to know that you're not the only one who who hurts the same way. Um, to know that grief doesn't go away; it just sits quietly for a while, and you never really know what it is that will you'll hear or you see somebody will say to you that will just bring that back up to you and you have to kind of stare it in the eye for a moment and say oh welcome back and then figure out what it is that you need to do to move forward with the next step and so that's a nice thing to have in in a fictional series like this to have that comfort of knowing okay these are these are real well, people these are people too um, they're not just comic books they're not godlike divine characters they're not you know the apex of creation it, they're they're flawed and pained and not terribly unlike us and so uh, brandon something you said very early on was that 
in these moments of tragedy, they do inspire the moments of hope that come thereafter. Because if those characters can, can succeed when they have to revisit these things time and time again, it gives us a little bit of hope that says, hey, maybe I can make it too. Maybe I can pick up and, and tell somebody and say, hey, this, you know, do you remember this? This came back up and I was thinking about this and you know, that's all. To have somebody you can to share those things with, um, you know, is immensely valuable, you know, to quote another TV show that some of us watch all the time every day, every single day of our lives, you know, our, our victories are sweetened because we did them together and our losses are softened because we did them together. You know, it's that kind of thing that we have to remember and remind ourselves to say that not only do I have a thing that hurts, not only do I have, uh, you know, a pain or a past or something that I carry with me, but so do you. And maybe I can be the one who helps bear that with you for a while. So, you know, friendships are important for that. Relationships are important for that kind of thing, that sharing of the burden, which makes things so much easier. So how do the characters handle it? Well, I don't think Ezra handled it super great. Um, I'm still not... <laughs> the ending of Ezra in, in Rebels is concerning to me still, the last couple episodes of him. There's a little bit of the dark side embrace, I think. That scares me in his character. Um, he's doing a lot of good things, but I there's something going on inside that boy that's a little bit scary some days. But you know, we look at Hera and we see what she has to live for, and, and see what she takes, you know, the deep sadness and the dark pains, and, and turns them into the joys that she fights for. You know, she you know talks about her son, and especially in Alphabet Squadron where she has to convince herself the fight is worth fighting. And why is the fight worth fighting? Because she's got a family back home she's fighting for. So that's where I'll, I'll take that one too. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the relatability factor is, I mean, huge in stories overall. Like if you, you've got to be able to relate to the characters, but then especially when they, you can relate to them in times that are hard to handle. So Devor, you came to rebels later on. So I'm imagining mm-hmm. you probably watch these episodes. Ah, kindred spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining you watch these episodes, uh, net or, uh, excuse me, back to back. So yeah. how, what was that experience like in terms of, uh, your grief in losing Kanan, but then also understanding the grief of the characters? I mean, there's, there, there's two things about, about this episode and about like, the reactions that really stand out to me. One of them is something that that we've already sort of talked about um, a little bit, which is about Hera and getting to see her grieve. Um, and I like that, like, I, I love that the moment that the episode gives her a kind of true blue moment to grieve. Because, there, like, there's that moment, I think it's very early on, when they first get back to their little, like, base or hideaway or whatever. And, like, there's a bunch of them huddled around, and they're, like, talking strategy and such. And then Ryder's asking her a question about, like, next moves, and she just basically walks away. Like, she doesn't even answer him. Mm. And for me, that's so powerful because, like, the show, like, Rebels doesn't give us, like, a ton of moments where we are kind of sitting with Hera and, like, just seeing, like, what's going on in her kind of internal life. And, like, so often we experience her kind of refracted through the lens of other characters. And so this is a great moment where, like, for the whole show, she's been, like, carrying the weight of the rebellion and having to make all of these, like, tough, pragmatic decisions where, like, other characters are reacting to situations based on emotion. And she has to be the one to say, like, look, you need to put that aside. You need to do, like, what's good for the cause. 
And then here's just a moment where like the cause is calling to her and it's like, what's the next thing we're going to do? And she's like, I, I got to walk away. Like, no, like I, I'm not going to deal with this right now. Like she's taking that weight off her shoulders to actually like focus on herself for a moment. Um, so I think that's really powerful uh, for her. And then the second thing is about is with Ezra and everything that he basically goes through. And like, I think what's so interesting about Ezra's situation, the way he's processing it, is that we we basically get to see Ezra going through the same process of loss with Canaan that Canaan went through when he lost Depa. So like, as we see when we first meet Canaan in season one, like, he's dealing with a ton of grief and guilt about the fact that Depa sacrificed herself for him in Order 66. We get that moment where he's confronted by the Grand Inquisitor and he's like, what's the last thing your master said to you? Run. And Ezra kind of deals the same way. And, and we get in that, in that phenomenal moment, which is one of my favorite moments in the show, which is the confrontation with Doom the wolf and like he's initially like he runs away from the wolves and then he is ultimately brought to the place where where he meets doom and you know doom tells him you ran and you can see that like that fear and that guilt that Ezra is dealing with and for me like that's it's such a powerful moment because like that that moment with Ezra where he's facing down the wolf, like it has so many other analogs in like fiction and literature. It is, it's the ghost of Hamlet. It's Scrooge being faced by the ghosts of, you know, Christmas past, present, and future. It's the Commandantorian Don Giovanni, right? It's this moment where the spectral entity appears to you, where like your internal struggle becomes externalized and you are made to confront what is happening inside you through this external entity. And for for me, like that's just super super powerful in that moment where Ezra, where Ezra has to face this kind of embodiment of Canaan through the Force, and he has to like wrangle with what's happening inside of him with this other being or entity. Yeah, and I mean, I've always thought of that as like as Canaan almost. Yeah, and so I like how you put that about how it, it it's the you know in, internal becoming external and him having to to face that like quite literally um, because you know when we are dealing with something like that like if we keep it in ourselves and you know Drew you kind of pointed this out too like that can be a big problem but when we can relate to somebody who has also lost somebody or somebody who knew said person or, you know, that kind of thing and open up with them and be like, Hey, do you remember, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that is very powerful. Even if it ends in, you know, you guys crying or feeling, you know, even more down because of how you lost the person that was important to you. But knowing that there's someone else there makes it better. At the same time. And I think Absolutely. that, you know, having the wolf there and, and how they set up the, the Loth wolves through the story, you know they're attached to the Force. So in a way, I mean, not in a way, I think quite literally, actually, they are, this is them saying, you know, Kanan saying to him, I'm still here. You know, no one's ever really gone, uh, to, to quote the sequel trilogy. And then when we get to Rise of Skywalker... 
we get those voices of the Jedi who we have grieved the loss of, uh, and you know, Kanan of course is included in them, and it really shows that they're still a part of something else. They're still a part of even if even if you don't believe in a, a higher power or anything like that, like the the person is still the people are still the experiences are still a part of us, you know, um, and so that's something that can never be taken away. And, and when you learn that, that's a really powerful lesson. And I think we learn that through what you guys have pointed out about having others there to relate to. So when we switch to the sequel trilogy, we get to Ben Solo, who is a character who seems to be handling <laughs> grief uh, it, poorly, differently. Um, he's an interesting case with grief because... He, you know, has kind of brought it upon himself, but at the same time, um, you know, he's he's grieving the loss of his identity. Um, he feels that, you know, he is at fault for killing his peers at the Jedi Temple. All of these things, like he's really struggling, and we even see him, you know, taking on this new identity and and this death of Ben Solo, and that is all centered around the characters of Luke, Han, and Leia, who are kind of the external manifestations of what he feels that he can never live up to, which is very similar to what Ezra was dealing with. So I want to go through Han, Luke, and Leia um, and their relationship with Ben in the sequel trilogy and what, particularly what the loss of each of those characters um, teaches us about grief. So we'll just go in the order of the films and start with uh, The Force Awakens and the loss of Han. Because in Force Awakens, we actually do get to see Han and Leia grieve the loss of their son. Um, and and the resolution for this, it's to me, is, is really interesting. I never thought of it in this context until starting to think about the show. The resolution of that grief is actually the moment when Han dies and he gets to see his son again and to show Ben that he's still loved you know there's that touch on the face uh there's there's no anger there there's no regret there there's no shock there um so Lindsay, for for the audience as it regards han's death what is what's the lesson that is being conveyed about grief in that moment i think that you you need to accept how do I want to phrase this? Because it's going to sound bad. But <laughs> I, dive I into it head first. There's a certain level of martyrdom with Han's death that we hadn't really seen before, where he knows full well going into this situation what could potentially happen. You know, I think he he's confident that he could turn his son, and he's confident that he can get through to him. But he knows going into it that there is a chance this is going to happen one way or another. Even if it's not his son killing him, there's stormtroopers around. Like, there's there's this chance. And the grief that we need to, to understand or the part of grief we need to understand as the audience is that people make their choices. And sometimes you, you have to respect that. It's going to hurt you. And you're not going to agree with it. You're not going to like it. 
but you need to respect the choice that that person made willingly. And it's an interesting kind of grief, and it's, it's I think, very hard to grasp. But it's true, and it's going to happen in life. And Han's death is, I think, off the top of my head, really the only time or the first time that we saw it in Star Wars. Mm. It, it, it's kind of like the, the death of who or what you expect them to be. You know? Like, we've always expected somebody to be our hero or whatever, you know, and, and even Daisy Ridley said it about last Jedi, like don't go meet your heroes. Um, so that's a really interesting way to look at it. Drew for, for you, what's being taught in that moment with Han? Oh boy. I don't know that I have a better answer than Lindsay's. Um, I'd like that to be true. I think that she's right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Write it down, I guess. Yeah, no, Lindsay, you want to get that for Date your ringtone? Sucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, Long ringtone, but sure. <laughs> it's like just just clip it. It'll be your text alert. Um, yeah, there there definitely is something about letting your children make their own mistakes. I guess that's what you're you're getting at. Because if you're looking at it from Han's perspective, where he has to kind of. Because he doesn't really let go of Ben at this point. He still walks out onto that catwalk with way too low railings. Um, with optimism. Kind of a clear-eyed optimism to know that there's always a chance that things don't go well. Um, I don't know that he... Do you, guys, do you think he walks out there expecting not to walk out? Or does he really think that there's I think a, a part chance he's going to come with him? That's no, what it I looks really like, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and what I find fascinating, too, about that scene is we talk about it from the, the grief of us in the audience, and I think that's matched with Ray and Finn. The one who I think has the most, not necessarily the most grief, but probably the most interesting grief would probably be <laughs> Chewbacca, because on top yeah. of this, now you have what I, I would have to imagine is grief combined with guilt because if if that were me in that situation and i'm watching my best friend do this you know what does what does he do he immediately fires that bowcaster right after and it's it's that issue i'm sure of should i have let him done this should i have shot this a little bit sooner what if i had gone with him and that's a totally different kind of grief because it's just compounded and you go in these cycles where the audience or the the rays and the fins and even the layers can start to accept it now you have the grief of i lost someone and what if it was partially my fault mm. that's interesting devor what do you think about uh, the idea of survivor's guilt for chewbacca and everything surrounding that oh that's an interesting notion i hadn't thought about that before with um with Chewie, I don't, I mean, I think, I think there might be something to that. Um, I think, um, to, to sort of go back to the question that you started with, uh, Brandon, um, in terms of like, what's the lesson about grief that Han is conveying in The Force Awakens? I think for me, and I think this is a moral that I think to some extent also bleeds into the, into the next case that we're going to talk about, which is Luke and the Last Jedi, is that I think what Han shows is, he illustrates the importance of both on the one hand, uh, on the one hand, the dangers of either 
avoiding or wallowing in your grief and then also the importance of actually like doing something with your grief, which is to say having your grief proactively change into some kind of action. Because what we see with both Han and Leia in The Force Awakens is that their response in the aftermath of Ben turning the dark side is essentially to in- engage in kind of avoidant behavior. Basically, their marriage breaks apart. There's the line, I think I think it's Han who says it's not Leia, about like, we both went back to the only things we knew. Mm-hmm. So basically, their response to their own grief, to their loss, is basically just go their own separate ways and to exist in a kind of denial and to try to walk away from it. And then ultimately what Han does in The Force Awakens is he actually forces himself to finally confront it and to actually go out there and try to reach out to his son. So I think there, I, I think there's a moral in there. And again, we'll sort of talk about how that, I, I think, also applies in the case of Luke about like, at the end of the day, what you have to do with your grief is like that grief has to translate into some sort of action. Ultimately, you can't just sort of there's a danger in just either in just sitting with it like in perpetuity or just going through some sort of avoidance slash denial behavior. Well, and I think if we, you know, tie that all together with Chewbacca, too, what does he do after that? He goes and helps Ray and Finn. Yeah. Who are. You know, as far as the movie is telling us, like the christened by, you know, Han as the next generation, you know, he's the mentor in their hero's journey at that point. So, yeah, that's a really interesting, like how it all kind of ties together, because, you know, there's the regret of could I have done something for Han? There's Han knowing you know, there's not anything more he can do for his son at that moment. And then there's Chewie taking the actions, which, you know, we're, we're going to get into of what do you do with those actions with grief? You know, like how do you move forward? And that's, that's what, you know, Luke in the last Jedi is about. We get that great quote. No one's ever really gone because in TLJ, we meet a Luke Skywalker who has allowed this grief uh, to, to overwhelm him much in the same way it overwhelmed Ben Solo, but it's also a Luke who tells a grieving Leia that no one's ever really gone. Uh, when she considers, you know, the things that have happened in that film to be the end of her son. She's, I mean, that was a huge moment for me as this character who's the epitome of hope, you know, it basically says hope is gone, not just for the galaxy, but for my son. Um, and Luke comes back right after that with a message of hope. So, Devor, for you, what is the message being sent there about the relationship of, of grief and hope and personal redemption? Yeah, so that line that you just referenced from Luke, I think is really, really important when he says no one's ever really gone. What's interesting about that line as it relates to Luke is that no one's ever really gone is a lesson that Luke learned in the OT in the context of his father. Everybody, Ben, Kenobi, Yoda, everyone was telling him, Anakin's gone. You got to kill him. You have to destroy Vader. And it's Luke who's like, no, he's still in there. He's not gone. And he ultimately gets proven right in the end. So I think what we see in the context of Luke at the beginning of where he is in The Last Jedi when we first meet him is that I think what we see in the case of Luke is that it and The Last Jedi, it shows us that grief in certain circumstances, and I think this is the case for Luke, it can be a cause for a kind of 
psychological regression. And that sometimes the way out of grief and the way to regaining hope and to regaining, let's say, some sort of personal redemption is that sometimes we need to relearn lessons we once understood. That grief can, in the process of getting sort of consumed by grief, which is, as you pointed out, is the case with Lula, we can forget certain things that we once knew to be true, and we need something to kind of jog us back and get us back into the lessons that we once knew. And that, for me, for example, is one of the things that's really powerful about like, what is, for me, my favorite scene in the sequel trilogy, which is Luke and Yoda and their final conversation. Because it, the thing that ultimately jogs Luke finally out of his out of his morass, out of his self-pity, is it's Yoda showing up and being like, you didn't listen to me when I told you pass on what you have learned. Like, you forgot, I gave you that lesson. You forgot that lesson. You didn't apply it. Pass on what you have learned. That means passing on your failure. And that gets back to the point that I made a few minutes ago about like the importance of being proactive with your grief. That's what Yoda's trying to tell him there. Like, when you experience failure, the reaction shouldn't just be to like, walk away from it all, shelter yourself, and to just kind of sit with it forever. Pass on what you have learned. Be proactive. Do something with that. And so then once Luke is kind of reminded of those things that he once knew and once understood when he was younger, before he had suffered that trauma, before that trauma had kind of inflicted a kind of amnesia upon him, it's at that point that he can then show up on Crate and be like, hey, no one's ever really gone. I learned that once before. I once, like, I was once in a position like you, or I was in a situation where I was told someone was gone forever, and I discovered, I realized that no, no one's ever really gone, and I'm here to give you that lesson that I have now relearned now that I've emerged from my, from my grief-induced solitude. Is it weird that Luke learns that lesson of no one's ever really gone after the ghost of his mentor appears to him? Like, literally, can Ben and Yoda continue to appear to him after they've died? Is that not just weird, like, circumstance? Like, they uh, actually uh, physically appear to him. I always kind of get... It's kind of like a weird thing. But, like, I think it's important to note that it that is an incredibly difficult step to take like yeah t- proactive like like mm-hmm. turning pain and grief into proactive you know get out there and do something mentality is exceedingly difficult and oh, yeah. requires yeah incremental action over mm-hmm. the course of years like mm-hmm. there are days it's hard to put your socks on and and I know sometimes we think about it as just a joke, but just getting out of bed can be a win some days. Yeah. Um, I don't want to minimize or skip over that because it's easy for us to say yeah. like, mm-hmm. this guy who we see on screen, who's like a Superman, like we see him kind of, he, he has a conversation with a ghost and then suddenly he, his mind is made up and he's in a better headspace and everything's great. And that is not what we on earth get to experience at all. And, the level of struggle that it can take to get to that point where you are making some kind of a contribution again. I mean, I feel like it's very easy for someone to hear this conversation and to say, that's great in theory, but in practice, absolutely does not work. Right. 
and, and I just want to reinforce the fact that like I think all of us can probably attest to the length of time it takes to get oh god yeah and it's not even getting yeah. getting mm-hmm. back to feeling normal but to like feeling like a human being again um, can take time and you should give yourself time you and have I think my permission to have time I think that there you're a hundred percent right it it's not conveyed on screen to the proportion that we in the real world need it. Yes. But I think there's, <laughs> there's also, a, there's a connection there when Luke is facing Ben and Ben says, if you come here to, you know, save my soul and oh. Luke says, no, to me in the context of grief, like in the, in the story, I think, you know, it's initially written to be like, no, I'm, I'm, I can't, I'm the one who caused this. I'm not the one who can fix this. Oh, here's Ray. She can fix it. But in terms of grief, I think there's an argument to be made that, that knowing that he is not the one that can fix it is, is an acceptance of the fact that there is that part of grief that we never overcome. You know, we talked about Mm. it earlier with, uh, you know, there's, you can have a, the sound of a bird or a certain smell. It could remind you of that person. Right. And grief it in, in terms of like that initial moment to me is always just felt like that times a thousand times a million. Everything reminds you of that person. Everything, uh, makes you think of them, you know? Um, and, and part of grief is not being able to escape that. And while we don't get to see it, in action in that moment, I do think it's powerful to know that like Luke doesn't come in and sweep in and win the day in terms of saving Ben and he fixes everything and everything is awesome. Like that regret, that pain, that grief is still there because he knows he's not the one who can save him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really, that really scene. powerful. It's so that scene is just amazing. Everything <laughs> Luke does in that sequence is just honestly. There's something about it pitch perfect to me. It's like everything because, well, like you said, when he says no, it, it, it reveals so many, so much about the two characters. Ben is concerned with the status of his soul so much that he brings it up in conversation. But also, like Luke has to admit, I am not the one in who can do that. And I think there's a question in Luke's mind if anyone can, like, or if it's too late for him. I, I don't think he knows the answer to that question yet, but he certainly knows that he is not in a position to make it happen. So that's got to be scary for him to like put the, the, his trust in someone else to say, this thing I want to see happen, I cannot make it happen, but I'm hoping someone else can. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Guys, the Last Jedi is a really good movie. It's it's okay. I like, I like it. <laughs> it's up there. Um, it's so, a great thing. It's the last movie in the series, and, and they went out on a high note. That's so good. You shut your mouth. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're still with us. I'll have none of this. None of this. Well, let's let's go to the aforementioned oh, best. not last movie of the... Ro- oh, 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 you want to talk about Rogue One. Okay, Yes. Great. Here's what I think. <laughs> Oh, God, we would spend an, uh, another hour and a half on Rogue oh, One. Rogue One. Can we just for a moment just bask in the glory? Like yeah. we're Jin and Cassian on the beach 
basking in well something completely different yeah how are we having a conversation about grief and we're actually not talking about <laughs> where everyone dies well because they they're not allowed to, they're not alive to experience it yeah they don't really get yeah, to grieve <laughs> Touché, um, sir. But pour one out for Admiral Radis. Oof. Oof. <laughs> Ooh. A moment, All right, please. that's eight. <laughs> God. <Yeah, I> <laughs> um, but to go to to go to Rise of Skywalker and Leia, you know, the redemption of Ben Solo is attached to the resolution of his grief that consumes him with killing Han. But it is also attached to Leia. Her death and his redemption happen concurrently. Um, and, and I have ideas and theories about that that I've you know Crazy put on Twitter. Crazy ideas and theories. Yeah. I have all kinds of things that I've come up with that can be a little bit wild, and you can <laughs> read those online. But, Lindsay, you as the one here that has definitely seen Rise of Skywalker the most... Uh, <laughs> I, that wasn't a joke. That Proudly was, so. I, I know. know. What, I think like 18 times opening weekend alone. Oh. I'm like, Drew's over here laughing. I'm like, no, I, I, no you're our like, Rise no, of Skywalker she, she expert. She has. This is it's not this is a, a joke. That's what, <laughs> that's what makes it funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to hear your thoughts on the connection between Ben... Um, and his grief in in terms of what he's become and what he has failed to become, and Leia in her final moments. So what I find interesting is I think Leia kind of represents or does the best job of showing my own personal feelings towards grief. And I know, like I'm, I'm under no false pretense here, I know that I can sound like kind of a crappy friend sometimes because... <laughs> sound like... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but when people I love are going through something, I just know personally when I have been through tough times, people throw out that line of everything happens for a reason. Uh-huh. And my issue with that is quite a few issues actually it doesn't actually make the situation better because i'm like well it doesn't change anything for right now like this still really sucks and i still have to deal with it so i I hate that line of everything happens for a reason and i tell people when they're going through a tough time that the best thing you can do is tell yourself that not everything happens for a reason sometimes crappy things just happen and it's okay. And the reason I think this isn't even necessarily because I 100% in my heart believe it. The reason I think this is because I find that when people are dealing with grief, they do maybe more what the Ben Solos and the Kylo Ren's do, which is let me find the rationale for this. How come this terrible thing happened to me? And they obsess over it. To a point where they miss out on all these other good things in life and things that they can be doing. Whereas I think Leia takes the approach I, I do, and I certainly try to help others do, which is simply, look, things happen. You can't really change them, but you can keep moving forward. That doesn't mean you have to forget that this thing happened. That doesn't mean you have to pretend this thing that happened was a good thing. You just accept This terrible thing happened to me. It happened to someone I love. It's going to 
to, you know, impact you forever, but you can keep going. Yeah, like the option, I don't want to say the option is there. That's not the right way to say it. The hope is there that you can continue on, uh, that you can, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think a lot of us, you know, when we lose those special people in our lives, our hope is, you know, I want to be what they thought I could be. You know, I know that's what I think, you know, with my grandma, you know, I want to be the man that I know she thought I could be. And that gives me the hope that can continue to, to go on past that grief that like, she wouldn't want me stuck there. She wouldn't want me to stay back in my grief, but at the same time, like, it's always going to be there. Uh, I was watching a great YouTube channel called uh, Cinema Therapy, and it's a therapist and a filmmaker, and they watch films together and talk about the psychological aspects of it. And um, they were talking about Inside Out and how joy and sadness learn to basically work together. Because when you lose somebody, all those happy memories that you had of them start to have a tint of blue because you're going to, because you lost them. And when you think about them, you're going to think about the loss that you had of them, but it doesn't negate the positive things that you have of them. And I think for Leia, that's something that is always there. And and I hope that like for us as people on this podcast, but also for us as like a community and, and humanity that we can, hold on to that, you know, that like, even though these bad things happen, not saying that everything happens for a reason or get over it, right? I'm not diminishing pain or whatever, but there is that hope that like, I eventually will be able to remember this person with joy. And to me, that hope is, is powerful and pulls me through those hard times and, and it doesn't make them less difficult it doesn't diminish them at all, uh, but I think it gives us the hope that something more is out there, which is what I think Leia is doing for us, in, or doing for Ben, rather, in The Rise of Skywalker. Devor, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, um, I mean, when I was thinking about this question and, like, how does, how does Leia's sacrifice, you know, how does it connect to... Ben's redemption and such. One thing that I was thinking about was like, there is, there's, there's, there's a very clear parallel in Leia's final moments to her estranged father, Anakin, in the sense of, not in the sense of like her being in the position of the person who is like redeeming themselves, but in the terms of that parallel of a parent laying down their life for their own child. So she is essentially, even though, you know, as we see in Bloodline and such, that she has a very fraught relationship to Anakin, like, she is now kind of finding herself in the position that her father once found herself in. And um, I think there's a moment in, I haven't read this, but, like, there's a moment in the, I think, the junior novelization for The Rise of Skywalker, where it talks about how, like, Leia, in her kind of final moments as she's reaching out to Ben, she sort of hears like voices and presences from throughout the force. And that like in those final moments, she kind of reconciles with Anakin just before she passes. Oh, wow. 
Um, yeah, I think there's something to that effect. I, mean, I haven't like read the, like the original source, but I've sort of gotten the second hand. I think there's something to that effect in the junior novel. Um, and to me, what it made me think about um, here, I'm going to get into like a little bit of my a larger view of the force mode. There's a therapist by the name of Irvin Yalom who wrote a book called um, Staring at the Sun, which is about basically like confronting death and about death anxiety. And in there, he has a chapter where he talks about the confrontation of death, either the prospect of one's own death or the death of somebody else. So basically an experience of grief, grief or loss of someone else's, that it can be a catalyst for triggering what he calls an awakening experience, where basically you achieve through that confrontation, you achieve a, a clarity about some facet of your own existence or about existence in general. And so when I think about Leia in that moment where she is, you know, she's got the parallel to her own father and she gets that kind of moment where she gets to kind of reconcile and kind of give her, you know, reconcile with her father and then give herself up for her son the same way that Anakin gave himself up for his son. Like, I think about that as like, is Leia having in those moments when she's confronting her own death there, she's having a kind of awakening experience where she now, she now kind of under, understands, she, like she has a new understanding or a different understanding of like her place in this kind of Skywalker chain of being and of how she kind of connects and relates to her father and then what she is doing to kind of advance the kind of next generation ultimately through Ben and then ultimately through the next Skywalker, which is Rey. Um, so, yeah. Man, just the idea of Leia like reconciling with Anakin like is huge because of what we see in Bloodline. Like she has... She doesn't have grief like Luke does around the loss of Anakin. Like she has anger over it because of what yeah. he put her through. Yeah. And so if in her grief she's given an opportunity to confront her anger, like I don't know, Drew, what do you think about that? I feel like that's like galaxy brain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, Bloodline is good. Bloodline was good. Uh, yeah, it's a different emotional reaction and it's a different um, path to walk through in order to deal with that could probably be its own episode thing. We should probably talk. Well, we should probably table that one for another night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so as far as the thing about that one, it doesn't do well with reconciling with Anakin very well in, in, in other source material that no longer exists, but used to exist back in the 90s. I'm getting there. Don't spoil it's good, man. It's good. Um, uh, all right. Some of it's good. <laughs> it's an experience. That is accurate. Yeah. There yeah. Are, there are books. There, there are books. There they are have, books. they have some chapters in them. Uh, <laughs> man. So I know tonight was like a, a heavy topic to talk about, but I, I really do think it's important to you know, have these discussions about not just the great things that our characters do that inspire us, um, but also the things that they deal with that are very human and how they, um, I hesitate to say overcome, but how they move on from those things and how they use it to inform their lives. So, of course, as Drew pointed out, as we said in the beginning of the show, we are not therapists we are not licensed professionals of any sort and if you are struggling with any of these feelings if you are having any of these thoughts and and you don't know what to do or you just want somebody to talk to please go seek 
uh, professional help. It is absolutely life-changing. And I will say right here, right now, that if you uh, are afraid of taking that step or you want uh, somebody's personal story of going um, and seeking help in therapy and or just advice on how to uh, find one, please reach out to me at clashing savers network at gmail.com or at clashing savers. Uh, and I will personally do whatever I can to help you to find that path. Um, cause I have seen in my own life, the kind of power that it has. And, and I know all of us here, um, can attest to that. So we do like to joke around on here and, and get a little goofy, but also, you know, we, we do consider this a community and we aren't everybody to know that we are here to support you guys. So until next time, uh, make sure you're following us on Clashing Sabers Network, uh, or excuse me, Clashing Sabers on Twitter, and then Clashing Sabers Star Wars on Facebook, and Instagram is at Clashing Sabers, Patreon, all that good jazz. Drew is at the Drew Brett on Twitter, because he is That's the me. Drew Brett. Lindsay That's is me. non-existent on social media. Uh... <laughs> Actually, right now, that's true. If anyone can help me figure out how to unlock my own Twitter, that'd oh. be awesome. Oh, dear Lord. Lindsay. I know, I know. I've only so ever not- been on Twitter on... I've only ever been on Twitter on my phone, and I got a new phone, and I have no idea how to log in now because I set it up 12 years ago, and I no longer have access to that email. <laughs> Oh. So, so you're not getting all the cool Taylor Swift gifts that I've been I've been tagging you in. That's no, just awesome. yeah. I don't uh. know what time of day it is, man. Text me those. <laughs> These are the important things. All right, and when you're done with our garbage, go over to Larger View of the Force. Devor, tell them all about that and where they can find you. Yeah, so Larger View of the Force is a um, it's a Star Wars podcast where I take basically i take deep dives into particular facets of the star wars universe and those can sort of vary from episode to episode but i like to there's a big emphasis on kind of analysis and um you know trying to bring in insights from other thinkers and writers and from you know, realms of philosophy and history and such. So, you know, I've done episodes about, for instance, about the philosophy of the Jedi and connecting that to the philosophy of the ancient Greeks. I've done episodes on um, history, memory, and myth in Star Wars. I've done episodes, I did an episode um, in February about love, where we got to do a little bit about, like, philosophy and psychology of love. So I like to do these kind of deep dives um, and kind of close reads on various elements of of star wars um and so if that is a thing in which you're interested you can find a larger view of the force basically pretty much like wherever you're listening to this odds are you are you can also find a larger view of the force there um i am on the show is on twitter at a larger view pod and then i'm also on twitter at demondum and I will have all of those links in the show description along with um, our contact information and hotlines that you can call if you need to reach out to somebody. So all you have to do, uh, just click on that uh, link to Divorce Podcast, click subscribe. I promise you, you will not regret it. Um, yeah, that's it, guys. We're going to call it a wrap and we're going to make sure, you know, we, we dealt with a heavy topic tonight 
And I want to just make sure that we all leave remembering the most important message of Star Wars, which is Batch 8. Butts, 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 butts. (laughs) Lindsay, can you get him in line, please? He's embarrassing me in front of our guests. Oh, whatever. He had Taylor Swift songs on his episode, too. (laughs) That's true. That's a whole episode about it. A whole episode. of us. The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it, it's ours, they made it, it's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.